Nice to be with you. Came in this morning, a lot of energy in here. Nice to see a bustling place, people happy, getting along. That's awesome. And thank you for the privilege of speaking here. And congratulations to Joel and Duane on 25 years, a long obedience in the same direction. That is tremendous, uh, outstanding. You know, I came in this morning, if you don't mind, I'm going to speak on kind of the intersection of politics and faith this morning, but I I just have to comment on this uh, slogan right here, where heaven meets earth. That's a great slogan. Uh, You know, in the, when you go to Washington, D.C., you see the dome. That's the iconic image of Washington, D.C. If you go down to our capital here in Olympia, there's the Capitol Dome. Did you know that those domes are actually copies of church architecture? Because the dome uh, was put first in the church over a quadrangular space in the history of architecture. That's how that came about. But the idea of the dome in a church back when was the idea that that's where heaven meets earth. So the dome represented heaven. You would have the angels on the art on the corners, the saints who had already died, they're up high, uh, and uh, then the people are down below on the earth. But the idea of church architecture with the dome that the politicians copied is that heaven meets earth in that place. And that's what's happened here this morning. Heaven has met earth here. We've uh, worshiped the Lord. His Spirit has come down and touched our souls. And that is, uh, that's a cool thing. And I'll say one other thing about that dome in Olympia and Washington, D.C., is that Americans self-consciously copied the Roman world. We wanted to think of ourselves as Roman. And so the, when you go to Olympia... You go into the Senate building, there's the eagle, the Roman eagle that overlooks the Senate. I prayed many times at the opening of legislature down there. And uh, you always look up and you see that Roman eagle. You see the rosettes in the ceiling that are very, everything about it is Roman. It's a Roman building. Our capital is a Roman building because we have wanted to see ourselves as the continuation of the Roman Empire. And that's significant, actually, from a biblical point of view, because uh, the whole thing about um, this world is that it's about kingdoms. From God's point of view, there are kingdoms. Daniel the prophet prophesied to Nebuchadnezzar that there would be four kingdoms, with Nebuchadnezzar's being the first kingdom to be noted there. After his would be three others, followed by a fifth, which would be the kingdom of God. You know, we are not here about a Republican or Democrat kingdom. We're not even here about an American kingdom. We are here about the kingdom of God and his kingdom in this world and how his kingdom relates to the earthly kingdom the one that we're in, that is self-consciously Roman. You see, those four kingdoms that Daniel prophesied, the fourth one was the Roman kingdom. And it continues on, not in political fashion, at least not since 1453 when 
Constantinople fell to the Muslims. That was the end of the Roman world as a political entity. Now we live in the fragmented Roman world. And uh, I've, I brought a couple of my books with me today, but in this book, uh, Chaos and the End of Time, I trace how the Roman world continues on in the present day. People have wondered, where is America in biblical prophecy? It's hard to imagine that the one remaining superpower, that the world's uh, strongest economy, you know, with like 22% of the uh, gross domestic product of the world coming out of the United States, it's hard to imagine that we don't exist in biblical prophecy. Well, in fact, we do. We are the continuation of that fourth kingdom uh, as it exists today. Uh, Politically, legally, in so many different ways, we are part of that kingdom. Well, uh, Christians today tend to think that we shouldn't really be involved in politics. I hear hear that an awful lot. But uh, I think personally that that's a mistake. Because there is an intersection between uh, the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. And that's the focus that I'd like to come to. You know, when Daniel prophesied about those kingdoms, he said in the time of the end, what would happen is that, well, in Daniel 2, chapter 2, verse 43, he said, And just as you saw the iron mixed with the baked clay, remember the feet of iron and clay? So the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the last days before the coming of the kingdom of God, the one characteristic that will exist, is that the people will not remain united. Does anybody agree that there is a lack of unity in the world today? I mean, that's the picture of the world. It's not united. But that's what Daniel said would happen before the final kingdom came. The, the, the people will no longer remain united. That they'll fragment. They'll, they'll break into components, if you will. Uh, and it'll be one against the other. <clears throat> and that will be the sign, the preeminent sign of the coming of the Lord's kingdom. When people are not united as they are today. And it goes on to say, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will it be, will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. God showed to Daniel and to Nebuchadnezzar the history of the world, the way it would unfold. Four kingdoms, chaos, lack of unity, and then the fifth kingdom would come when Christ will rule on the earth. It was for that fifth kingdom that Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in the Lord's Prayer. The same prayer where we're taught to pray for the forgiveness of our sins, 
where we're taught to pray for our daily bread is the one where we're taught to pray for that kingdom to come. And not just in a heavenly way, but in an earthly way, on earth as it is in heaven. The people want to spiritualize it all and have it to be about heaven missed the prayer that Jesus said to pray. Pray that the kingdom would come on the earth in the same way as it is in heaven. When the pilgrims arrived here in this land, they came to establish that kingdom. That's been the motivation within America from the beginning. Thank you, sir. Am I getting dry already? Uh, It's the story of my life. They said, can you get some water? You're looking... Anyway, thank you for that, Dwayne. You're you're a good man. I appreciate it. That's why I'm glad you took the offering when I before I preach because I'll get a lot more, and so I, I appreciate that. If you'd have waited till the end, you know you might have stolen what little bit there was of the offering. You know, so somebody help that man out. How would he get in? Uh, but anyway, but thank you for that, Dwayne. You're, you're a gentleman and a scholar as well as a long-serving and long-suffering pastor. <laughs> All right, where was? Oh yes, the Pilgrims. They came to establish here in America. A kingdom. That was one of their stated goals was to advance the kingdom of God and to plant the flag of the new kingdom here in this new land. Similarly, when we became a country, you know, with our Declaration of Independence 1776, our Constitution in 1789, did you know that we were a Christian nation then? Because in the state constitutions of every state in the Union, there was a requirement of religious faith. You had to believe the Bible. And in almost all of them, you had to be a Christian. One of them gave allowance for you to be Jewish, but you had to believe in the Scripture. You had to believe in heaven and hell and in the truthfulness of the Scripture. Now, this was in the state constitutions of every state in America. So when people say we were not a Christian nation, they don't know their history because that was in the constitutions because those people who founded America as a nation saw themselves as establishing the kingdom of God on the earth. You see, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, what did he say to do? He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, people think that's the Great Commission, which of course it is. But that's not the ending of it. The sentence continues on. And... Teach the nations to obey everything that I have commanded you. So the Great Commission is not that somebody gets saved alone, but it's that the nations should be taught to obey every command of God. The Great Commission, let me just say it a different way. The Great Commission's goal is that the nations would obey the law of God. That's the Great Commission. Get people saved, but teach the nation to obey God's law, God's commands. And so American law is built very much on the commands of God. 
You know, in the in the uh, state house of uh, United States House of Representatives, there's an image. There are these various medallions around the top of the building there, inside the, where the State of the Union's given, and all of that. And there's various famous people there. There's the image of Moses, for example. Why is that? Because Moses was the lawgiver. And so his image, the image of Moses, is in the United States House of Representatives. There's another image, and it's of Justinian. Justinian the Great. He was a Roman emperor. What in the world is a Roman emperor doing with his image in the United States House of Representatives? Well, Justinian's great contribution to the world, and the reason they call him Justinian the Great, is because he changed Roman law. First of all, he shrank it down to about 5% of what it had been before. So he threw out a lot of laws, got rid of a lot of stuff, consolidated it, organized it so that it was cohesive and coherent and all of that. But five, down to 5%. But in that, he also incorporated the Christian principles into Roman law. So because of Justinian, for example, uh, a woman had rights. Uh, the right to marry the person that she chose. Not as it had been in old Roman law that the father owned the children. You know, you could kill your own children without legal penalty under Roman law. But that began to change when Christianity came into play because they said, you know, that's not a good idea. But it gave women the right to choose their own husband, not to be sold uh, as a bride. I mean, these were the changes that Christianity brought into the world. And so Justinian incorporates those ideas into Roman law. Roman law passes into British law. British common law passes into American law. Uh, and you know that the most quoted book in Blackstone's commentary on the law, which was our primary document for our legal stuff in America, was the Bible. It, it very much flowed into American law. And the truth is that even to this day, America almost 100% agrees with the law of God. They do, except in one area. And you know what that one area is? Anything that has to do with sex. If you took that out of the equation, because we all still agree with the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. We all still agree, thou shalt not steal, especially if you're talking about my stuff. And even we agree that you shouldn't lie to the FBI uh, or anybody else, you know. Uh, I mean, we agree because if you lie, you're violating God's law. You also happen to be violating American law. But you see, if you take sex out of the equation, you know, gay marriage, all that kind of stuff, you, we would have virtually 100% agreement in America. Because our laws in America are based on God's law. That's what we set out to do in the beginning. That's what we're doing, largely speaking. But, you know, all the stuff about abortion and all of that stuff, it all has to do with rebellion against God's law with regard to sex. If, you would obey, if we would obey God's law in that category, uh, we would be uh, in very good shape. So Jesus gives the Great Commission. And he says, go into all the world, 
preach the gospel everywhere, and teach the nations to obey everything that I've commanded you. So the apostle Peter, for example, in writing to the Christians uh, that were scattered about in his epistle, he says, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, those were the exact same words that were applied to Israel at Mount Sinai, where the law was given. But Peter was not writing to Jews there. He was including uh, the Gentiles. And he said, you're a chosen people. If you're one of God's people, you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. That is, we're priests unto God, who is the royal, who is the king. And you are a holy nation. The idea was to create the holy nation. That was the goal that Peter said, the apostle Peter said, was what we were all about. That we were about a kingdom. We were about God's kingdom coming and being established on the earth. And so the disciples... Uh, hearing Jesus say these things, agreed that's what should happen. And after the resurrection, uh, Jesus stayed with his disciples for another 40 days, talking to them. And just right down toward the end of that uh, period of time when Jesus was talking to his disciples, um, they were, he was talking to them about the kingdom of God and the way things were going to unfold. And one of his disciples asked him, this is recorded in Acts chapter 1, they said, Jesus, is this the time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because he'd been talking about the kingdom, and so they wanted to know, okay, is this the time? Is now the time when the kingdom is going to come? And Jesus, the answer that he gave is interesting because he said, you know, it's really not your business when this is all going to happen. Your business, your end of this deal is to wait here in Jerusalem until you have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When you have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then you're going to be a witness for me, and you're going to go here in Jerusalem and in Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the world. For Jesus, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is the empowerment of, of God to do the work of God, was connected to the kingdom coming to the world. Have you ever heard that way before? But that was where Jesus gave that answer. Are you going to establish the kingdom now? And he said, never mind about the timing. Your job is to be filled with the Holy Spirit and get out there and be a witness. Your job is to get out there and be a preacher of the gospel, be a sharer of the message, to be a teacher of the nations as to what God expects of people, what God wants from us. So I'm trying to show you here that the idea that the kingdom is only a spiritual kingdom of heaven, that it, it really sells the whole thing short. That, that God's ambition from the very beginning, which he revealed to Nebuchadnezzar through the, uh, the prophet Daniel, was that there would be earthly kingdoms and that those kingdoms would exist. The fourth kingdom would begin to fragment, would become disunited, which is where we are today. And then God's kingdom would come. But God's kingdom in its power will come as people are filled with the Holy Spirit and they go about on this earth teaching the ways of God, 
discipling people, uh, teaching them to be the people that God intended them to be. And this whole thing that you and I are involved in today comes to a climax in the future. And that climax is recorded in Revelation chapter 11, where it says, Now the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That's the culmination. That's where all of this is headed. We are headed for the kingdom of Christ, replacing the kingdoms of this world. That doesn't excuse us from trying to teach the nations to obey everything God's commanded. This is what we are to do. This is what our task is. To, and that really, we usually call that discipleship. But, we've, but as a people, when we only think about discipleship and not teaching the nations, we're taking something out that has been there before. You know, one of the great minds of the 4th century was Gregory Nazianzen, maybe the greatest Christian of that century. And Christianity had just become legal. Up to that point, it was not legal. And so various legislators, including the emperor, had become Christians. And uh, Gregory Nazianzen, that great preacher, said to them, he said, come to the aid of the word. That's exactly what he said to these leaders in politics. Come to the aid of the Word. That is, become a supporter of the Word of God. And then he goes on to say, because you can do more good than I can as a preacher. Because you have the right to make murder illegal. You have the right to make theft illegal. You have the right to take the principles of the Word of God and, in, and have the law reflect that, and you have the power to enforce it. And that's what, and so think about that. Christianity is now legal in the world in the fourth century for the first time. It wasn't legal to be a Christian before that time, through the edict of toleration and, and all of that. Uh, So it's now legal, and the leading preacher of the day stands up and says to the politicians, because he's teaching them to obey everything God has commanded, he said, come to the aid of the Word. That is, to be an implementer of the Word of God through law. And this is a noble objective. It is a proper objective to do this sort of thing. This is the way... Uh, Christians have thought and acted from the beginning. You know, Irenaeus, um, first of all, Irenaeus, Irenaeus, we're talking one of the earliest guys of the church fathers. So the apostle John uh, disciples Polycarp. Polycarp disciples Irenaeus. And Irenaeus, in his writings, lays out the formula for government and how it ought to function. And what it ought to do. So you're two generations from the Apostle John. And Christian leaders are... And they have no authority in the government. They're laying out the requirements for government. And what government ought to do. He does that in his book Against Heresies. So I'm just showing you that from the earliest days of Christianity, beyond the biblical period, church leaders have understood the mandate. 
that we are to be engaged in teaching the nations and we are to uh, be a part of bringing the kingdom of God to the earth as Jesus told us to pray. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We're to pray for that. We're to work for that. So my title that I proposed for this message was How Should We Pray for America? And the most fundamental prayer that you can pray for America is let your kingdom come to America. Let your law come to America. Let your values and principles come to America. And to be enthroned as it should be in this land. It's how we were discovered, how we, the pilgrims came. It was how the founders of America established the country. And it's how we as the Church of Jesus Christ uh, intend to continue the country. That is to use our best influence to see that Christian values are represented in this country. Now, that's how we are to pray. And that's how we're to work. We are to work to see that established. And by that, I mean how we vote, but even the kinds of things we've been involved in. You know, in my life, uh, I have worked probably all of my ministry to try to accomplish this in various ways. Uh, I regret to say that when you look around, you can see that I haven't been that successful because America has deteriorated considerably during my period of time. But it is not for want of trying. Uh, You know, we have given it our best shot over these years and continue to give it our best shot. You know, I was just thinking, I have managed somebody's campaign here in Washington State, somebody for president, in every election since 2000. Um, In 2000, it was John Ashcroft, the, the attorney general and governor of Missouri and senator from Missouri. 2004, I was state chairman for the Bush Cheney campaign. Uh, 2008, it was Mike Huckabee that ran his campaign here in Washington. 2012, it was Newt Gingrich. And uh, 2016, I thought I would sit it out, but ended up getting recruited to to be co-chair for Ted Cruz's campaign. And so, you know, I've tried at that level. I've been on the state director of, not director, but on the campaign committee for a number of senator candidates over the years. And, uh, you know, it's kind of frustrating to be on the losing end almost all the time, to tell you the truth. (laughs) But uh, I have won occasionally. But I'm always trying, uh, trying to have some influence and trying to make a difference in the state uh, and in the country. Uh, You know, God called me when he called me to the ministry to turn people to righteousness. That's how he called me. In fact, I was at Willamette University studying political science. My undergraduate degree is political science. And uh, one night I was praying, and I was laying in bed on a Friday night, and I was praying, God, what do you want from me? What do you expect me to do? And so I I actually got out of bed, and I said to God, I'm going to read this Bible until you talk to me. And I got out of bed and began to read my Bible, and within 30 seconds, because I opened it to the book of Daniel, chapter 12, And it said, they that turn many to righteousness shall be as the stars that shine forever and ever. God said, that's what I want you to do. And you know, interesting, I told this story to the president of Boeing a um, couple of years ago, and um, Jim Albaugh. And um, I told him that story. 
I said, because he was my roommate in college. And so I said, you know, we, we shared the room. So he's sound asleep six feet away, and God is calling me to the ministry. And so I said, while you were sleeping, you were headed on to be, you know, become the president of Boeing and make a little bit more than I make, uh, you know, uh, by a million times. But, uh, and I was there and God was calling me to turn people to righteousness. But I've been engaged in doing that all of these years and I want to continue to be. Well, this is how we pray. This is how we act. But this is also how we vote. So when we vote... We vote for candidates who will support the teachings of Christ about life, about marriage, about family, about vocation, about education, about justice. I mean, these are the points of attack today. And so we vote for people who we think will best represent the Christian ideals and will uh, put them into law. Now, I can tell you that we have been uniformly short of people who can do that perfectly. And we always will be until Jesus comes. And so, you know, if you're looking for the perfect candidate, um, I'm not running this year, uh, you know, but uh, and neither is anybody else who is uh, perfect, you know, so you won't find that. But you have to make a judgment on that. And for many, many years, I've done what I call, at pastorspicks.com, I make my voting recommendations. I vote for, uh, make a recommendation for every House and Senate seat uh, in the state and many other things, and I've done it for decades. Uh, and, I, and it's worth about 20,000 votes, I calculate, by uh, the number of hits that I get on that webpage. But I'm trying to influence the elections as much as I can in that way. So you vote for people who you think will advance the cause of Christ in the areas of law that will stand for life, stand for marriage, stand for family, uh, as God intended it. That's how you and that's why platforms matter, actually, because that's where parties say this is what we're for. So we do that uh, here in in the United States. But we also vote for candidates who will use the economic, military, and cultural power of the nation in defense of those same values. So we have power as a nation, militarily, economically. And that power should be used in advance to advance these ideas. That's the way we have done business as a nation over the centuries. You know, the United States Navy, for example, was started by Thomas Jefferson. And he started the Navy because there were Muslims in uh, the Mediterranean, in North Africa, who were seizing ships and capturing Christians and turning them into slaves. And so, uh, Jeff, and they were the, the Barbary pirates, as they were known. You know, in the Marine uh, song, From the Halls of Montezuma to the Shores of Tripoli? Well, the shores of Tripoli is where um, Thomas Jefferson sent the U.S. Navy, newly formed, to protect shipping and really to rein the Muslims in uh, in what they were doing in taking slaves because the Muslims were the greatest slave traders of the world and they remain so today. Slavery is still in existence in the Muslim world uh, uh, in in a big way. But we did it 
uh, as a nation. We did these things, uh, you know, against um, the Nazis, for example, against the imperialists of Japan. Those were Christian activities. Uh, You know, when uh, Roosevelt uh, led us in prayer on the D-Day invasion, so the troops are going ashore on D-Day, Franklin Roosevelt gets on the radio, television wasn't available then, gets on the radio and leads the nation in prayer. Himself. Himself. He's he's on the radio leading the nation in prayer. And he is praying for our, our Christian religion. That's in his prayer. He is praying for the troops because he saw them as defending our religion. And, he, and going ashore there. You know, in the long fight that we had with communism. You know, communism is atheistic. And uh, when the communists took over in Russia, you know that Stalin killed probably 20 million Christians. When the communists took over, Russia was the largest Christian nation in the world. And they killed Christians by the million. Uh, Mao Zedong in China killed probably 70 million people, many of whom, not most of whom, but many of whom were Christians because they were atheists. Pol Pot in, uh, in Southeast Asia killed millions of people, including the Christians. Atheism has been the biggest killer, bigger than Islam. Atheism has been the biggest killer of Christians and of people. But you see, America, we were not just interested in the economics of communism, but the fact that they were atheists said, we need to fight against this. And so we did. And when we put on our coins in God we trust and on our currency, that was enacted at the height of our battle with the atheists. Because we wanted to show that we trusted in God, while as, whereas they were atheists. It was a big factor in how we did our foreign policy. You know, Abraham Lincoln was the first one to put in God we trust on our coins. He did it on the two-cent piece back in the midst of the Civil War. But officially, it becomes the motto of the nation. By the way, the motto of the American Revolution, does anybody know what the motto of the American Revolution was? No king but Jesus was the motto of the American Revolution. Tells you something, doesn't it? So, I, I'm, But I'm talking about foreign policy here. So we vote in such a way that we can, in our foreign policy, <clears throat> Christians will be protected and um, the cause of Christ will advance around the world. You know, many times over the last 200 years, we've had to deal with the Muslims around the world. When the Ottomans were causing problems, we would sail a few gunships into, into Istanbul and uh, point it at the sultan's bedroom and say, hey, do you want to calm these guys down or do you want to talk about this? Uh, and so we would come to the defense of Christians in, in institutions around the world, the Muslim world, and it was a big factor in our foreign policy. Uh, even the formation of NATO had a lot to do with spiritual values. You know, the southern flank of NATO was uh, 
Turkey, well, it was Greece in the beginning, but then Turkey, uh, Israel, Jordan, Iran, Iraq. That whole southern flank of NATO was designed to contain the spread of atheism through, out of communism. But, but these were spiritual ideas that were shaping the foreign policy of the country because of who we are as a country. And that's how we voted. We voted for things like this. You know, the recognizing of the nation of Israel. Did you know that America was the first nation to recognize Israel? And we did it 11 minutes after Israel declared itself a nation. Harry Truman was a Christian. And, uh, you know, the State Department was saying, hey, we can't recognize Israel. We don't even know if they're going to survive. And we don't want to lose access to Arab oil. And so we need to stay clear of this. But Harry Truman goes into the White House that weekend and he prays. He spent the, uh, several days virtually isolated from people. Uh, and he was praying. He was a Sunday school boy. Uh, he, and he often quoted the scripture about God giving the land to the Jews. And so when Israel declared itself a, a nation, 11 minutes later, Harry Truman announced that America recognizes the state of Israel. But that was profoundly a spiritual decision. Because if God promised them the land, then it's their land. They get it. And so if they're claiming now the restoration of their nation of Israel on that land, okay, I'm in. And so he recognizes them. And, you know, Marshall, famous general, developer of the Marshall Plan for Europe, he was dead set against it. He said to him, he was his secretary of state. And he said to Truman, if you recognize Israel, I'm going to vote against you in the next election. But Truman prayed came to the decision that he came to and, and voted to recognize and, and unilaterally stated that America recognizes Israel. I'm just saying that in foreign policy, spiritual values have an impact and they should have an impact and it's the way America has done its business in the past. So when we pray, we pray for the kingdom to come. When we vote, we vote for people who, in the national law of America, will support biblical ideas and who, in American foreign policy, will stand up for Christianity, will defend it against the attacks that are coming against it. You know, and today, the attacks are primarily coming from the Muslims, although they are also coming uh, from Hindus and Buddhists and, and others in various parts of the world, but primarily against, uh, from Islam, as it has been actually for centuries, for 14 centuries. That's actually, I mean, there's these waves that come. We happen to be in one of these high waves, uh, and, and so we got to settle it back down. But we do that because Christian people are being killed. I mean, within the last couple of weeks, they've been Christian kids who've had chainsaws taken to them been cut in half. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that's going on in the world. Beheadings. Some of it which we see, a lot of it we don't see. But there's whole villages in Syria, for example, that are being wiped out by the jihadists. I mean, these are people that still speak Aramaic. I mean, you know, about 11% of Syria is Christian. 
And these are Christian people. I've been in some of the churches there where they still speak Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke. Uh, And they've been Christians for 2,000 years. And America is not standing up for those people. We're, you know, we're against Assad, but Assad protected those Christians. The Christians of Syria want Assad. That's the strange thing, you know, and we don't, uh, and we're, but we're not defending them. We're letting them be slaughtered. In the past, we never would have done that. But today, it's how America's failing uh, to defend Christian people, as we have for centuries. Uh, our whole existence, we've done this. But today, we're lacking. So I would encourage you, as you think about pray for God's kingdom in America. Vote for God's kingdom domestically as best you can figure it out. Who's going to best advance the kingdom of God? And who is going to act in such a way that those who want to bring harm to the kingdom of God around the world will meet up against America's economic, cultural, and military power? Uh, That they will meet up against us because we're going to defend the faith. Uh, we're going to defend the people of God. I mean, it's, we, you can say it's for freedom's sake, which gives a secular angle to it. But it's for religion's sake, for the sake of Jesus Christ, that we want to stand with brothers and sisters who are suffering around the world. So let's pray to that end. Uh, I'd like to uh, bring this to a conclusion. I see we're at that time. And, um, but I'd just like to invite you, first of all, to receive the kingdom of God into your own heart. And if you're here today and you're not right with God because of sin, uh, choices that you've made, wrong directions in your life, uh, today would be the day for you to say, Jesus, I want to play on your team. Uh, I want to be on your, in your kingdom. And you get into that kingdom by confessing your sins, asking Jesus to forgive you, and inviting him to come into your life. I'd like to have you just bow your heads with me for a moment, if you would, please. Just with your eyes closed and your heads bowed just for this moment. Who here today knows that you're not right with God because of sin in your life and you would like Jesus to forgive you and to come into your life? You want him to be your king and to serve him. Who's in that category? Would you just lift your hand right now? Thank you right here. Thank you. A couple of folks over there. Thank you very much for that my left. Who else would this lift up your hand? Say, because of sin, I'm not right with God, but I do want to be. Who else can I pray for here today? Thank you there in the very back. God bless you, sir. Thank you right here in the center aisle. Thank you over there toward the back on my right. How many others would just lift your hand? I'm not right with God because of sin, but I do want to be forgiven. I want to be right with God. Thank you there. God bless you. I saw that hand. God. Praise God. Let me just pray for you right now. Just right where you are. uh, Just pray your prayer. Father God, we pray to you today. We confess our sins to you. We ask you to forgive us in Jesus' name. We pray that the blood of Jesus shed upon the cross would cover our sins. Pray that prayer if you raised your hand. Say, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, come into my life. Put your spirit within me. Begin to direct my decisions so that I can follow your ways and your law. Help me, Lord Jesus. I make you the king of my life. You're in charge now. Uh, You're in charge of my life. I give you that authority that I'll follow your ways and your laws and be your person as best I can. 
Help me, Lord. Help me to obey you and to follow you. And Jesus, help us to be a witness for you. To bring brothers and sisters and parents and kids and friends and co-workers and fellow students. To let them know of Jesus and your mercy and forgiveness. Lord, we want to be a witness for you here in Fife and in this community. God, help us, I pray. And Lord, we pray for America. Uh, We unite our hearts to pray for America. uh, That you would turn this nation to you. Lord, forgive us of our sins as a nation. Of going our own way. Forgive us, Lord, for preferring people who are godless over those who are godly. And I pray, Lord, that you would raise up people uh, who would be godly, who would act in godly ways uh, for this country, here in this state and in this country. And Lord, even those who are not personally godly, I pray, Lord, that you would move upon their heart like you did upon people who had failed dramatically, like Samson, like a Saul. And you still use them for good ends and for good purposes. And Lord, I pray for those who are not godly personally. But I pray, Lord, that you would use them for good purposes. uh, To defend the faith. To recognize its right. And Lord, we pray for our, our political leaders that they will give their hearts to you. They'll confess their own sins. Receive you as Lord and Savior. And begin to follow you through the place that they have. That they will come to the aid of the word. Uh, and do their part uh, in your kingdom's sake. Lord, I thank you for this church. I I thank you, Lord, for the 25 years that it's been a light in this community, uh, discipling people, teaching the ways of God. Lord, I pray your blessing upon Dwayne and Joel as they lead the church. I pray for your blessing upon the leaders of the church and the elders and and those who have responsibility. I pray for the people here that this will be a great church, that it will succeed in its mission, that it will be a light in a dark place. It will be the light of God in this region and that you would elevate their status, Lord. You'd give them a a, a stronger light uh, and shining from a higher mountain into this region, that it would truly be a place of a new horizon, a new viewpoint for the people of this region. Lord God, bless this place, I pray. Pour out your spirit in a great and mighty way. Thank you for it, Lord God. We commit this people to you, these leaders to you, and all that this church is in Jesus' name.